1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That you know, one conversation or conversations shouldn't hinder the committee's investigation into what's really important, which is the attack on the Capitol. And so the committee could write the subpoena in a way that says, we are demanding testimony and documents relating to whatever it's asking Bannon about. But with the president's conversation specifically, it can say, we are demanding testimony and documents about your conversations and interactions with the president that relate solely to his political and personal capacity and that do not relate to his official duties. And if it did that, then there is, by definition,
0: no problem of executive privilege. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 20th, 2021. Jonathan David Schaub is an assistant professor of law at the University of Kentucky. He is a former OLC attorney and the author of a series of recent Lawfare posts on executive privilege witnesses, documents, and the one-sixth committee. He joined me in the Virtual Jungle studio to talk about Steve Bannon, to talk about the former president's suit against the National Archive, to talk about all the privilege claims that are floating around, the misinformation about them that's proliferating on Twitter, and how the Justice Department will think about actually handling the cases that are now presenting themselves to it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 20th, everything you wanted to know about executive privilege, but were afraid to ask. I want to start with the lawsuit that the former president filed this week, which seeks to enjoin the National Archive from... Complying with the request for the subpoena uh, for documents issued by the One Six Committee. So let's let's start with just by walking through what former President Trump is asking for and why he needs to go to court to get it.
1: Sure. So he has sued a number of defendants, the chairman of the committee. Chairman Thompson, the committee itself, and the archivist of the United States. And he's asked for two things, essentially. One is a declaratory judgment that says that this committee's requests are invalid, largely because they are too broad and they don't have a legitimate legislative purpose. And so he asked the court to declare that the committee essentially has no authority to request all this information from Uh, the National Archives. And then he also asks the court for uh, an injunction against the archivist and the committee from acting any further to get documents from the National Archives. So the injunction would, would prevent the archivist from turning over any information to the committee. He asked for an injunction against Chairman Thompson from taking any actions to enforce the requests or from imposing any sanctions for non-compliance with the requests. So he's he's essentially asking the court to put a stop to the information exchange between the National Archives and the January 6th committee.
0: And do you see any prospect of the court granting such a request on either front?
1: So I, I don't. These types of actions are difficult because once the information is turned over, the case is moot, right? So the interests that are asserted by Trump in the documents, uh, the privilege interest, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. Um, once those documents go over, there's no claim anymore. So in many cases, courts are willing to kind of maintain the status quo before you know rendering a decision, to give them time to look at the issues that are at play. But they only do so when there are, I think, substantial questions on the merits and where they think that Trump has a real likelihood of success and here, I just don't think a court is going to accept that there's any any validity to the arguments that the committee doesn't have a legislative purpose. And I don't think the court is going to accept the view that Trump's claim of privilege should take precedence over President Biden's decision to waive privilege. Um, the only one that I think there's a reasonable, and, and I would not make say it's likely, but there's more of a chance than the others, is the request that uh, the court enjoined this just for a temporary amount of time so that it's basically a procedural objection so that Trump can have more time to look at the documents. He makes some claims in the complaint like they aren't numbered very well. We can't tell what's one document and what's another one. There's not enough time to go through all of these. So that that's the, the claim. If a court were to grant one, I think that would be it, which would just say, we're going to just kind of put a pause and give some more time here, but we're not going to believe that you're going to be successful on these sort of larger questions of of privilege and and legislative purpose. So separately from
0: that, the committee has also subpoenaed a number of witnesses, and one of them, Steve Bannon, is defying the committee, and the House has now prepared to vote on a uh, contempt citation and refer the matter for criminal contempt. Where are we with this and what is the status of Bannon before the house right now so he
1: has uh, defied the subpoenas so he's refused to appear for a deposition and he's refused to turn over documents and it appears he's he's done a complete stonewall whereas some of the other witnesses have uh quote unquote engaged with the committee uh, whatever that means I think it basically means their counsel have has contacted the committee and, and talked to them a little bit. Maybe they've turned over a few documents. But Bannon has done a complete stonewall, and the committee has prepared a contempt report and is prepared to vote to hold Bannon in contempt of Congress. And once they do that, it will go to the full House. And the way that the, the, the contempt of Congress statutes are written, there needs to be a full House vote which is then sent over to the Department of Justice um, as a referral saying this individual bannon has been held in contempt of Congress, and at that point, it's in the u s. attorney's vote, along with, you know, the Justice Department to decide what to do with it.
0: So we often talk about the fact that the Justice Department often does not prosecute these contempt cases, particularly when, as we'll discuss, the contempt is directed at a official for following a executive privilege claim or a privilege claim. However, uh, there are times when the executive branch considers it something of a comedy obligation to Congress to actually prosecute contempts of Congress. So before we get into the privilege Questions I want to ask you about how Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco are likely to think about the question of who they owe what to here. On the one hand, they have to defend traditional executive privilege claims, which we'll talk about. But on the other hand, you know, if the committee can't get its subpoenas enforced... It has no ability to compel anything from anybody. And so my, my question is, what is the conversation going to be like at the Department of Justice when this referral shows up?
1: Well, I think it'll be an interesting one. And I'm sure it's already going on. You know, there's very little, I think, institutional sympathy in the Justice Department for, for Congress because the two are often at, at loggerheads and have been you know, over the past two administrations. But there are some significant questions with Bannon because the contempt statute, so the if you go back to the sort of the origin of the contempt statute, right, there's this legislative history where, where Congress says, you know, we have this power to hold people in, in inherent contempt. We can put them in jail. But what had happened was there was somebody who had uh, engaged in contempt sort of right at the end of the session of Congress said, well, we can put him in jail for you know a week or two. But that doesn't really do anything. And then Congress ends, and then he's out uh, because that Congress has ended. So we need something better. We need something that will enforce contempt, even if it's at the end of Congress, a, a particular Congress. And so they passed this criminal contempt statute. And it's written in mandatory language. So it says, if there is a referral to the Department of Justice, the DC U.S. attorney for, for D.C. shall uh, bring it before the grand jury. And so I think the Department of Justice recognizes that that is Congress's intent to have these prosecuted. And as you say, there are these hist- there's a history of non-prosecutions and those really started in 1984 and there's an opinion from OLC that basically sort of lays out the argument that even though the statute is written in mandatory language and even though the Department of Justice is in enforcing this statute is sort of acting as a helper, right, as a to Congress and a sort of vindicating Congress's interests. And that's the reason for the statute that there are certain separation of powers concerns under the constitution that lead the department of justice to read this mandatory language as more discretionary. And so it, it gives the executive branch is charged with prosecution of crimes. That's part of the executive power And if there is a a assertion of privilege, which we'll talk about, then you would have the Department of Justice prosecuting someone who was following the directions of the president, right, who's in charge of the Department of Justice. So it leads to all these uh, absurdities if there is this privilege claim. And so the department said, yes, we will prosecute contempt of Congress, but we will not do so if there is a claim of privilege. And we read the statute to give some discretion to the US attorney during the Obama administration uh, Lois Lerner was referred to the department for contempt she had claimed a fifth amendment privilege and the US attorney declined to prosecute her going on the same rationale that there is discretion not to prosecute when prosecuting would would violate the constitution in some manner so i think the department's main for conversation to bring it back right now is here's here's the contempt referral. We are asked to enforce Congress's power here and is there a reason not to right? Is there some countervailing reason that we shouldn't proceed with this prosecution grounded in the Constitution or separation of powers? And so I think they're exploring whether any of those things exist and those would be, as you mentioned, things like privilege, Uh, claims of immunity, Fifth Amendment, those considerations.
0: So before we go any further, I want to contrast this with the situation of a criminal contempt of court, right? So in a contempt of court situation where somebody refuses to show up at a grand jury and give testimony under subpoena, initially he is held in civil contempt on the order of the chief judge as a coercive means of forcing him to testify, and he can continue to be held, I believe for up to 18 months or as long as the grand jury is sitting, which is usually enough to give somebody an incentive to testify. You then use the criminal contempt as a means of punishing if you think such a thing is necessary. Now, if somebody has a a privilege claim, you're going to adjudicate that privilege claim in the context of resisting the a kind of motion to quash right before you go into contempt in the first place here there's no way to do that because there's no adjudicative like if bannon if bannon wants to test the integrity of his executive privilege theory it seems like the only way he has to do that is to go into contempt and force the Justice Department, skip over the motion to quash, skip over the civil contempt, go straight to the criminal contempt. That seems like it escalates things awfully quickly. Are we skipping a step here, or is there some other way that these things should be adjudicated before you go all the way to criminal contempt?
1: Yeah, well, so there's a lot there. And I I think you've nailed something that I've thought about. And it's there's a quandary here. And part of it comes from normally a witness gets a grand jury or subpoena or uh, something compelling them to turn documents over. And they can, as you said, you can have a motion to quash, right? The problem with congressional subpoenas is there's the speech and debate clause and the speech and debate clause has been interpreted by the supreme court to, to mean essentially you cannot sue congress so i fully expect the chairman of the committee and the committee to be dismissed rather quickly in trump's suit because there's there's pretty clear precedent that you cannot sue members of congress as as defendants and so that prevents you from prevents bannon largely from being, bringing a suit against the committee to test the validity of the subpoena in a, in a civil action. Um, and this has been around for a long time. There's actually a case that's cited in the Trump lawsuit, Tobin v. United States, which was a, a sort of a poor records keeper for the Port Authority in New York, who had been um, subpoenaed for records about the Port Authority and had been instructed by governors not to turn the information over. And then was held in contempt and prosecuted for contempt of Congress when all he was doing was sort of following the orders of state officials. And the court said in Tobin, this is it's a really interesting case, the court says, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be having to adjudicate these difficult constitutional issues arising between the federal government and the state in the context of a criminal proceeding. And this poor defendant shouldn't be caught in the middle And so there have been many proposals to provide for sort of a civil mechanism that would be more akin to what happens normally, like if the executive branch, an agency issues a subpoena, they can lodge it in the district court to enforce it, and the district court can adjudicate privileges. So there have been those kind of proposals over the years, um, but none of them have gone anywhere. And so we're left in a situation where Congress has inherent contempt which is akin to what you described with civil contempt, it's coercive. If someone testifies, then they get out, but Congress hasn't used that in almost a hundred years and the practicalities of using it are very difficult. So the only option really is criminal contempt and the witness has to decide, am I going to face prosecution and sort of try to raise all of these defenses like privilege and so forth in the context of a criminal prosecution or am I going to comply and avoid that? And then when you're talking about executive branch officials and and here, are former executive branch officials, you have this sort of added layer on all of that of the battle between this inter-branch dispute between the legislative branch and the executive branch. And the executive branch is a party to that dispute, but is also the party that's supposed to enforce Congress's demands. So there's a very significant conflict of interest there.
0: Right. So I want to bounce off you the argument that I think we lose something when Congress does not use its inherent contempt power. So the way this is going to play out with Bannon is Congress passes this resolution, holding him in contempt. Then it refers it to the Justice Department. It then is at the mercy of the Justice Department, which, as we'll discuss, has some pretty powerful institutional reasons not to support Congress's position. So it may or may not bring the case. If it brings the case, Bannon then presents the argument for privilege in the language of a defense on which, you know, the relevant standard is proof beyond a reasonable doubt seems to me if you litigated the question in the context of inherent contempt, A, it would be much faster. You would hold Bannon in contempt. There would be a resolution. He would be ordered detained or whatever, at which point he files a habeas petition. And we litigate the question immediately uh, on a kind of exigent basis on the basis of a habeas claim filed by Bannon which is much closer to the motion to suppress model in the in the grand jury litigation context and then of course if Bannon decides to uh, or is ordered to comply he can comply and nobody would dream of prosecuting him at that point he was merely testing the privilege Question And everybody would understand that much as you do in the context of a motion to quash or even a brief period of contempt in the context of a grand jury investigation. So my question is, is Congress giving something up by giving this all to the discretion of the executive branch to decide whether or not to litigate this question? I think they certainly give something
1: up when you're talking about executive branch officials, and then, you know, Bannon is a private citizen, but he's invoking these executive privilege and former President Trump's assertion. So by sort of handing off its enforcement power to the Department of Justice and not having any of its own inherent power, not using it, then I certainly think they're giving up basically the ability to enforce their subpoenas. I mean, in my view, and I know it's not shared by everybody, but under the the current law and the current doctrine within the Justice Department. I, I just don't think Congress can force the executive branch to turn over any information if the executive branch doesn't want to. The cards are all with the executive branch, largely because Congress doesn't have its sort of own independent enforcement mechanism. Um, and so I think that's right. I don't think it would have to be inherent contempt. I think they could also provide They could pass a statute that provided for kind of an order to show cause, where they could lodge their subpoena in a district court, and the district court could then compel the individual to come forward. And if the the individual didn't comply, then they would be held in contempt of court, um, like any other person who's not complying with a subpoena. Um, So they could sort of use the courts to enforce their subpoenas rather than the Justice Department. So yeah, I think they give up a lot in contempt. Even the criminal contempt provision, it's misdemeanor, you know, the maximum is a year in prison. So it's not like it's an enormous penalty either. So they, they don't really have very strong enforcement mechanisms currently. And I think we've seen that play out quite obviously in the Trump administration. And Bannon may raise some of those issues and he may not, depending on sort of how the Justice Department views those issues in, in his this context of his particular contempt.
0: All right. So when this goes over to the Justice Department, as you say, the Justice Department will consider itself obligated to prosecute the matter unless there is some reason not to. And you spend a lot of time in your lawfare pieces contemplating what the reasons not to might be. And I think suffice it to say you are more credulous than a lot of commentators on Twitter, that the Justice Department might scratch its head and say, wait a minute, we have some equities on the side of not bringing this case. So why don't you walk us through what they are, starting with the fact that, you know, there may be some merit, albeit distant, to Bannon's privilege claim. Yeah, so I think it's
1: important to be precise when we're talking about, and you know, of course, Twitter is not the place for precision, um, but when you're talking about the claim here, and there's many people that have said things like, well, Bannon can't claim privilege because he's a private citizen. That is obviously true, but the claim of privilege is the former President Trump's, right? So I should say, it's not clear that he has formally claimed it, but he did send a letter to Bannon that says, I'm directing you not to comply. Because of executive privilege. And the Supreme Court has recognized that a former president has authority, in its words, to assert executive privilege. Now, I think there's a lot of questions about that Supreme Court decision. That's Nixon uh, versus the Administrative General Services. But that's the sort of governing standard right now that a former president has authority to assert executive privilege. The former president has informed Bannon that he intends to protect the privilege and instructed Bannon not to comply. I don't think the justice department can simply sort of dismiss that as as most people would like them to. And partly because there are, there's precedent within the justice department that says a private citizen who talks to the president about his official duties can fall under the scope of executive privilege. There's a 2007 opinion relating to President Bush's firing of U.S. attorneys. Some of the information involved conversations with people outside the executive branch. And then Solicitor General, Acting Attorney General Paul Clement, wrote in his opinion that the rationale for privilege, which is that, you know, the president needs to receive sort of candid advice, advisors need not to have the fear of exposure in order to sort of fulfill the president's constitutional duties, That applies equally when the president is receiving advice from outside the executive branch. So Clement's argument was executive privilege applies just as much to those conversations as to conversations with advisors within the executive branch. And I don't think the Justice Department is going to let that go. I don't think they're going to say in the context of Bannon, we're going to disclaim this 2007 opinion and say former presidents, you know, have no claim to privilege And that it doesn't matter, you know, that private citizens have sort of are not covered at all because those might come up in the future and the Justice Department might want to maintain those positions, right? You can imagine a situation in which the House in 2022 election switches and all of a sudden House Republicans launch an investigation related to President Biden or President Obama um, and the Justice Department might want to have some ability to retain privilege against some of those inquiries. So these are institutional interests that I don't think they're gonna sort of just give up. And although they don't seem too intuitive in many ways because Bannon is a private citizen and because President Trump is the former president, um, they will pose some hurdles for the Justice Department. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right. But, you know, each of these individually strikes me as a surmountable problem for the privilege claim. Like, yeah, maybe there are circumstances in which the courts would recognize a privilege claim from a former president. And yes, you could imagine on a sensitive foreign policy matter the president consults a former official who had been relatively recently serving about a matter policy matter specifically within her expertise, the court would say okay, that's a but you layer the former president on top of a political operative who hasn't been in the White House in a long time, on top of the sort of obvious misconduct overlay of January 6th. And it is, you know, pretty hard to argue that this should be covered by executive privilege. How much does the Justice Department eventually look at this and say, "Okay, yes, there's a little bit of merit, but not although not a lot on the former president stuff, and yes, there's a little bit of merit on the private citizen stuff, but you can't sum two inches and get a mile
1: yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right, but i and I think that to me, the most important layer." is the january 6th layer right because even if it's true that an advisor who's outside the executive branch can be protected by executive privilege in some circumstances it's only in the circumstances in which that advisor is advising the president about his official duties as president right and and as i sort of discussed on lawfare presidents have this kind of dual character two bodies as scholars have have called it where they have an official capacity, and then there's also this personal political capacity. And there's a lot of law and practice that separates the two, even though the lines can be blurry. But executive privilege applies only to acts done in the official capacity. Acts, it's to protect the constitutional duties of the president. So to me, to say that Bannon's advice, whatever it was, related to the official duties of the president. When we're talking about the inquiry into January 6th and an attack on the government and the Constitution itself is a step that no one would go in the Justice Department. I don't think the Justice Department would ever take the position, right, that the advice that was given related to January 6th had something to do with the official duties of of the president. And you can see in the Mo Brooks litigation, the Justice Department concluded and told the court that Representative Brooks was not acting in his official capacity and refused to defend him. And I, I think that same approach, that layer is enough for the Justice Department to move forward against Bannon. Even as you say, there is some, at least in the Justice Department's view, some kernel of merit to the idea that a a private citizen advising a former president could have some privilege at stake. Here, I think you can eliminate that as a possibility just because of the nature of the inquiry.
0: It also seems to me to be possible to say, okay, yes, maybe a private citizen advising the president can, under some circumstances, have a privileged conversation. And yes, maybe a former president can assert the privilege. But even assuming those two together can create a privileged conversation. And even assuming that the nature of the conversation about January 6th does not preclude privilege for the reasons you just said, President Biden is entitled to waive the privilege, which he has done. Why isn't that a dispositive answer all by itself?
1: So I think it is. And, you know, when I wrote my first piece, it was not there's not public knowledge that, that Biden had had made that determination. And I was actually kind of curious as to why he hadn't, because I there was on record saying I did not think and I, I don't think the Justice Department would have moved forward with prosecution without a clear statement from the current president that privilege doesn't apply, because that sort of eliminates this concern about former presidents. The Justice Department can say, yes, former presidents have some authority to assert privilege under the Supreme Court's ruling in the Nixon case, but that is subject to the current president's determination of privilege. And because President Biden has waived privilege, you know, Bannon has, has no privilege claim here. So I do think, and I think that's probably why the White House sent that letter and made it clear in the letter that Biden was waiving privilege over Bannon's testimony and deposition because that, that clears that hurdle for the Justice Department. And the only really remaining question, and this is the question that that Trump raised in his lawsuit, right, is whether sort of the current understanding that the incumbent president takes precedence over the former is somehow unconstitutional, right, that there has to be sort of independent authority in the former president to assert privilege no matter what the current president says. And the Justice Department has never, to my knowledge, sort of firmly concluded one way or the other, but I think it's, it's pretty certainly clear from the regulations governing presidential records that the archivist is operating under, and from the Presidential Records Act that the current president takes precedence. But I also think that will be the Justice Department's view, and I think it's sort of the obviously better view, that the person who is currently elected to represent the the country, right, is the one who gets to determine as a final matter what it is in the interest of the country to release and what it is in the interest of the country to withhold. But yeah, so I think his his waiver will, will clear the way for prosecution, even given some merit to some of these arguments that, that Bannon and Trump have been making.
0: Yeah. I just want to say that the unitary executive would take quite a hit if the former president could decide what information the current president is and is not allowed to release?
1: Yeah, I mean, and I know we're we're we may talk some more about the lawsuit, but that's part of the the crazy thing about the lawsuit, right? is it, it largely is asking the court to order Biden what to decide about what to release, which is a sort of inherently executive presidential decision, particularly if you are, you know sort of a unitary executive person. To say that the court can tell the president when to assert executive privilege or when not to gives the court an incredible amount of power. And it's pretty pretty out there, I think.
0: All right. So let's put this all together. And you say this referral comes over to the Justice Department with a, a presumption that the Justice Department will prosecute it out of a sort of institutional obligation to Congress. If there is not some reason not to, B, a bit of a reason not to in the sense that the Justice Department has some non-trivial interests in aspects of the privilege that Bannon is asserting, C, reasons not to simply, significant reasons not to simply accept Bannon's assertions, and claims, and so how does how do you think? I'm not asking you to speculate on what the Justice Department will do, but how do you think at the end of the day the Justice Department integrates all that information? Uh, it's got a significant set of conflicts of interest here. How do you resolve them?
1: Well, I think that's a difficult question. I think you know the Justice Department has to ultimately look at. For what's in the best interest of the United States, right? And the Justice Department is charged; the Attorney General is charged with the representing the United States in court. And its rationales for not prosecuting in the past have largely turned on the idea that it would be sort of not in the interest of the United States to pursue prosecutions when the president has made, you know, a claim of privilege. So I think ultimately they're going to say, you know. Yes, there are these sort of unresolved issues about privilege and former presidents and private citizens, but the current president has said there is no privilege claim here. And this January 6th committee is doing vitally important work. And Bannon, it it helps the department, I think, in some ways, because Bannon hasn't offered to provide anything, right? He refused to even show up. And normally, even if you're going to assert privilege, you would show up at the hearing and then assert privilege in response to individual questions. Privilege is not an excuse to, to not show up at all. So I think he's made it easier in some ways for the Department of Justice to say he has totally and completely you know, handicapped the committee's ability to get any information and you know the interests of the United States are in sort of reinforcing this method of inquiry and the ability of Congress to pursue this investigation about you know an attack on the country so i think that's going to be the the kind of ultimate decision is where are the interests of the country here and and i i see a lot of weight on bringing the prosecution and with the waiver of privilege there are not many sort of counter arguments to that so i would expect them to move forward but there's also the civil suit, which may, which may complicate that as well.
0: So there's another factor which may complicate it, which is that Biden has all but instructed them to do it, which, if I were the attorney general, would have me tearing my hair out. And the Justice Department has sort of made clear that it will make an independent judgment on this. But, you know, Bill Barr said the same thing about his various instructions to prosecute people from Trump. And people like me said, wait a minute, you know, it really, really corrupts the process when the president tells the Justice Department whom to indict and whom not to indict. How big a deal do you think Biden's rather flippant intervention in this is? And how much does it complicate what the department uh, might or might not choose to do?
1: Well, I think it was unfortunate and it makes the decision you know at least in appearances have a much more sort of political flavor than i think otherwise it could have been and and i you know as you said this independence between the department of justice and the white house and between you know politics and decisions about when to prosecute someone is a is a vitally important distinction i think to the functioning of the country and to democracy and we saw it eroded during the trump administration and so it's unfortunate that that Biden's comments play into this same narrative that that Trump is is pushing that this is all a political agenda and the committee is out to get him as for, as for political reasons. So I think the justice department was as you said not happy about that. I would I would imagine that they will release when the decision is made what to do. They will release some kind of letter or maybe it's an OLC opinion that supports the prosecution and explains it in an institutional and legal way to try to combat some of the questions about whether this is, this is politically motivated and whether this is being brought because Biden said this. And I, I certainly don't think Merrick Garland is going to be influenced by what Biden said, but because he said it, there is certainly going to be the appearance of that.
0: In your piece, you offered a fairly clean approach for the committee to make this dramatically easier for the Justice Department. And I want you to just walk through, you've alluded to aspects of it previously in this conversation, but walk us through how the committee could set this up most cleanly for Justice Department officials to wade through.
1: Yeah, so I mean I don't know what the, the proper term is, you know, you kneecap the executive privilege arguments or undercut them, but the I think the committee it issued very broad requests. And I think that's that was fine as an initial matter, right? They're trying to gather information. But one of the problems with contempt prosecutions, and you you alluded to this, the sort of you have to prove the elements beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to the committee has to prove that the matters it's inquiring about are within its its delegation from the House. And so you've got Supreme Court cases who sort are of throwing out contempt prosecutions because the questions weren't specific enough or because the charter of the committee wasn't specific enough. And then you've got these privilege complications that we've talked about. So my thought was the committee could make this very clean and could take away sort of all claims of privilege simply in the way that it sort of wrote the subpoena right? As, as I mentioned, executive privilege applies only to advice about official duties. So yes, it's possible that one of Bannon's conversations with the president at some point in the scope of the subpoena involved an official duty, right? You can see the president or Bannon making that argument. But that you know one conversation or conversations shouldn't hinder the committee's investigation into what's really important, which is the attack on the Capitol. And so the committee could write the subpoena in a way that says we are demanding testimony and documents relating to, you know, whatever it, it's asking Bannon about, but with the, with the president's conversation specifically, it can say we are demanding testimony and documents about your conversations and interactions with the president that relate solely to his political and personal capacity, and that do not relate to his official duties. And if it did that, then there is, by definition, no problem of executive privilege. It it never arises because the committee is limited in scope to the president's personal and political activities. And if Bannon doesn't comply, then there is no obstacle and no sort of institutional considerations in the Justice Department because he has refused to provide information solely about the personal and political capacities of of President Trump. And so you sort of just take away by definition, any claim of privilege, and any obstacle, institutional obstacle that there may be.
0: So the skeptic listening to you just now would say, yeah, but it puts in Steve Bannon's hands and his lawyer's hands, the ability to determine what is and is not part of the president's official duties, right? He's like, I don't want to testify about that conversation, or I don't want to give documents related to that conversation. I'll just say that's official duties. What's the adjudicative mechanism for that?
1: Well, so that's kind of the, the beauty of the approach in some ways. The body that adjudicates whether he's in compliance or not is the committee. So if the committee asks a question that is about what Bannon and Trump talked about with the political rally or ask questions that are very clearly about political activities or, you know, if there was conversations about there being an assault on the Capitol itself, if Bannon says these are official capacity actions and they're not within the scope of your subpoena, the committee is the one that is the judge of that. And if it's careful and ask about things that are very clearly not official duties... Um, which shouldn't be that hard given the nature of the inquiry. And Bannon says, no, no, those are official duties. The committee can say, no, these are political and personal duties. And if you don't answer, we're going to hold you in contempt. So the committee is the one that would judge and then it would refer to the Justice Department. And Bannon can raise that defense in the criminal prosecution, but there would be no barrier to justice bringing the prosecution itself, which I think is the important part here, because that's what's going to motivate other witnesses to come forward, to comply, to start negotiating, is if they see that there is a real possibility of a prosecution by the Justice Department for contempt, and if they see that these hand-waving assertions about about privilege really are, are not going to work, and they're not going to throw up any barriers.
0: And to effectuate this idea, would the committee need to withdraw its subpoena and issue another one, or could it simply advise him by letter, as the president's lawyers advised the committee by letter that he was waiving the privilege, that we would consider compliance with this subpoena to be complete to the extent that you testified on matters that were you know, not of official duties, but only of a, of a personal or political nature?
1: I, I think the, the most straightforward path would be to issue a new subpoena for him to testify in you know a week or two weeks and to make a very clear scope of what the committee is asking him to testify about, excluding official duties of the president and indicating if he doesn't appear, it will hold him in contempt. It would have the, uh, the contempt resolution ready to go. Uh, assuming that he defied that again, which it seems most likely is what he would do, then the full House could be ready to vote. So it wouldn't really take much more time. And it would make the contempt prosecution very straightforward because there would be a a clear, precise subpoena that he did not comply with that the Justice Department would use as the basis for the prosecution.
0: So if I were Jamie Raskin or Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney, I would say why should I do a two-week delay when I have a written waiver from the President of the United States for privilege? Yes, in theory, Jonathan Schaub makes a good point, but you know any privilege can be waived to whatever extent a privilege here existed. It's clearly been waived. So the point that Schaub is making, while it has a certain elegance, is not germane to how this case will actually or should be adjudicated?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't have a great response to that. I I think that the Justice Department's waiver does clear the way. I think the one response would be, you know, Trump has filed this civil suit now, and it's not clear uh, sort of what the Justice Department will do and the archivists will do, given that the civil suit raises this question of, You know, what's the constitutional authority of the president to assert of a former president to assert privilege, which is the same issue that would be sort of in play in the Bannon contempt. But this also doesn't have to be sort of just for Bannon. Right. So this would work with any witness. And it's probably more in some ways necessary with officials who were in the government because they were clearly having conversations with the president about his official duties, you know, Meadows or Scavino. And there are legitimate privilege interests in those conversations. I don't know if Biden will come out and say, I will waive all privilege for these conversations with you know, very high ranking advisors, particularly when he doesn't know necessarily sort of what they talked about. So I, I think the narrower the scope and the more clearly that the scope doesn't implicate the official activities of the president and therefore doesn't implicate executive privilege it makes it a much cleaner prosecution whether they do that with bannon or whether they do that with witnesses down the line it eliminates this sort of ambiguous background noise of executive privilege and focuses it on the the stuff that the committee is really interested in
0: all right so putting it all together we have on the one hand Trump suing the National Archives to try to stop document production. The Justice Department is going to have to defend that suit. And we have the House of Representatives poised to ask the Justice Department to initiate criminal litigation against Bannon to force him to produce documents and testify. Presumably the sequence of these litigations and their adjudication will matter a lot. How will the Justice Department want them sequenced, and what will be the principal interests of the department in pursuing them both concurrently?
1: I think that, to me, the civil suit will take precedence, at least initially. You know, the archivist has set November 12th as the deadline, so Trump will be trying to get a preliminary injunction. I think they've already filed for a preliminary injunction to stop the archivist from releasing the information, that could escalate very quickly with appeals and even to the Supreme Court and the so-called shadow docket, because at some point the archivist says, I'm going to turn it over unless there's a court order to the contrary. So if the district court declines to do a preliminary injunction, Trump's only option will be to sort of escalate it to the Court of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court. And the contempt, it's going to take uh, a little bit, I'm not sure if the House there's a date set for when the full House would consider the contempt, but there has to be that consideration. It then has to be transmitted to the U.S. Attorney's Office, then convene a grand jury. So there, there is some procedural steps that will take some time with the contempt charge. And I imagine the Justice Department will be focused primarily on the civil suit first. And you might even see you know the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which is the office sort of charged with prosecuting these contempt charges. You might even see that office say we're going to delay a little bit until the civil suit is resolved. If it looks like it's a relatively, it's going to be a relatively quick resolution, just that to be able to have some of those issues settled before before they proceed. But I do think the civil suit is going to be sort of the main main event for the next couple of weeks.
0: We are going to leave it there. Jonathan Schaub, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for
1: having me. It's always fun.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Kara Schillen of the legendary firm of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so share us on all the socials. Leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. Wear our merch, and for heaven's sake, talk about us at dinner parties and make yourself annoying. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And I'd be remiss if I didn't add that you can become a material supporter of Lawfare at our Patreon page, patreon.com lawfare. And as always, thanks for listening.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.